Welcome to Tread Lightly. I am running coach Amanda Brooks of Run to the Finish. And I'm running coach Laura Norris of Laura Norris Running. Between the two of us, we have over 20 years of coaching experience with thousands of athletes. Plus thousands of articles on all things running and one master's degree in exercise science. On this podcast, we're going to break down popular topics in running so that you can train smarter. Thanks so much to everyone who's already subscribed and sent us notes. We know the shows are going to keep getting better as we keep learning, so we appreciate you joining us early on. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple or Spotify. Today, we're going to talk about the art of marathon pacing. (laughs) Do you have any favorite marathon experience? Yes, and it feels like so long ago at this point, Um, but CIM 2016, both CIM 2016 and 2017, I ran it two years back in a row, were like these unicorn marathon experiences for me, especially CIM 2016 is one of those like I started out like controlled, but not too slow, just kind of rolled over those hills and then like finished my last 10K, like 10 seconds per mile average faster than the rest of the race. Like one of those things that just everything has to come together and click to happen. And it was my second marathon only. And it was probably like this really spoiling experience because it just, (laughs) things never quite align like that. Um, But it felt really great at that time. and was a huge confidence builder to have a marathon. It wasn't like huge negative splits. It was just like fair, like a few seconds faster in the second half compared to the first half, but it was just like a great feeling to feel really strong in the final 10K of a marathon. Kind of had that CIM 2017, but I had some stomach issues going on in that race, which is just a me issue. Um, What about you? It's funny. I always feel like a favorite should be like a PR kind of race, but realistically, like my first marathon, I finished and I was so giddy. I talked to people while I was running that entire race. Like it's still almost one of my best race times. And I think it's because I had no pressure, no expectations. Also probably because I was like in my mid twenties and things were easier then than now. But I think just that the only other one would be where I paced someone uh, during the Honolulu marathon. And again, there was zero pressure on me. The day wasn't about me. And so I think that's probably a little therapy session I've just had here to remind myself in the next marathon, if I let go of the pressure, it may go so much better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like I, for CIM 2022 is my first marathon in like five years. And I think I subconsciously put a lot of pressure on myself for that like post baby, post COVID quote unquote comeback. And the I feel like the pressure caught up with me in the race. Like my GI system went south. I probably started out a little too fast because it was like this oddly humid day and I didn't take that into account. I think that goes to show like we're coaches, but even we still like as runners can get in our own heads as about like marathon pacing. So we're going to talk about marathon pacing and all the factors going into it in this episode. Yes. So let's start with some of the terms that I think people hear a lot. Negative split, positive split. Like, what does all this mean? Yeah, that's, I think, a great place to start. Negative split is the idea that the second half of the race is faster than the first half. Um, This is quite difficult in the marathon 
some, t- some courses make it easier. Some courses make it harder. Um, like an example of that would be running, say, like a 145 in your first half of the marathon and a 144 in the second half. Um, so it's usually not a big gap. It's usually just by like a minute or two, but your second half is faster. A positive split is the opposite. Your first half is faster than your second half. Sometimes it can be just a slight one, say like a 144 first half, 146 second half, or it can be that marathon experience where you hit the wall and your first half is a 144 and your second half is two hours or something. Yep. I feel like the positive split is what happens to most of us, especially from the fueling discussion we had previously. (laughs) Yep. So I often hear people talk about they're putting together their race strategy and they keep saying like negative splitting is my goal. And so I just want to kind of share a little information. Most of the time when I'm talking to folks, I'm generally having them think more about even pacing. And I think this is a really, really good example of why. So in the 2016 Olympic marathon trials, of the 108 men's finishers and the 149 women's finishers, only seven ran a negative split. And one of them was our great Meb, and he only did it by 44 seconds. So I think when you're kind of setting yourself up for this idea that, yeah, I'm going to get faster in the second half, it's fine, like in those examples Laura kind of gave, where you're like a couple seconds, like maybe over that 13 miles you gained a minute. But if you're kind of thinking like, I'm going to gain 10, 20, 30 seconds per mile in the second half, you are really setting yourself up for a very, very tough day. Yeah, that would be a tough day. And I think that would kind of have like pressure that then caves into you and creates this like negative talk cycle of like, well, why am I all of a sudden not running a 740 pace at the end of this race? Like, that's hard. That's really hard. It's very hard. And I think we talk a lot about kind of holding back at the beginning. So I think that's where it maybe gets a little misconstrued into like, okay, I'll hold back. And then the second half, I'll just really open it up and go hard. And It's an awesome idea in theory, but to actually have the energy to open it up and go hard halfway through a marathon is really difficult. It is. It is. And I think that's where like when we talk about pacing a race, there's this like disconnect between your effort and your actual pace. Like even say if you're running even splits in the marathon, like marathon pace is going to feel pretty freaking comfortable in the first 10 miles. And that same pace is going to have a much higher effort in the final 10K, even if it's not changed. So sometimes we hear about like holding back at the start, pushing at the end is more of an effort thing than a strict pace thing. I think that's a great way to put it. It's initially it feels so easy that you want to run faster. So instead, yes, it's that hold back means more like, holding back on the effort so that you can just hold that pace and that pace is going to progressively feel harder. I think that's a great reminder. Thank you. Yeah. And it's a reminder we all can use. Um, And I think that kind of thinking about in terms of effort can really help when you then encounter variables like weather. So do you want to talk about how weather changes the pacing strategy, what research shows around that? 
Absolutely. So I think because some of the biggest races, Chicago, New York, are in the fall, Marine Corps, and weather is so hit or miss, it can be very cold or extremely hot. And so heat impacts our performance so much more than I think people often give it credit for. Um, there have been kind of a number of studies to sort of try and figure out, is there an ideal temperature? And often they're kind of showing like 39 to 49 degrees Fahrenheit um, or 3.8 to 9.9 Celsius was kind of like the ideal in terms of best performance. And that was looking at elite runners and comparing them across a bunch of races. Um, so it also showed that for every one degree Celsius increase, there was a loss of 0.03% speed. So in other words, by the time it got up to say 65 degrees Fahrenheit, they had a 0.24% loss in speed. So again, these sound like small numbers, but when you're talking like 10 seconds per mile over the course of your 26 miles to finally get your sub four, oh my gosh, those seconds like really add up. So there's a couple of reasons that this happens. One is that because as it gets hotter, your body is actually working harder. And we can see that specifically in our heart rate. So say um, when we even get up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, we already start to see that our heart rate is two to four beats per minute higher. By the time we're 75 and above, the heart rate is 10 beats per minute higher. So the higher your heart rate gets, the more effort it's telling your body, the more quick carbohydrates it immediately wants. So like fueling needs go up, but who wants to be sucking down gels when it's 85 degrees outside? So it just becomes a real struggle to sort of stay on top of everything. And then of course it gets even worse when we start to talk about humidity I hate humidity. <laughs> like it's so tough on race day. And like, I mean, I'm not very well humidity acclimated living in Colorado, but even like if it's cool, but humid, like CIM was this past year, it does play a role. Um, cause essentially humidity affects how, um, sweat cooling works. The, since the water in the percent of water in the air is so high, you don't as effectively sweat. There's not that dry air to pull the sweat off your skin. Um, I'm sorry if that's a really simplified thing of convection and sweat kinetics, but um, it just makes it harder for you to sweat. So if you're not sweating as efficiently, you're not cooling as efficiently. If you're not cooling as efficiently, your heart rate, your core temp, all those things are just going to keep going up and up and up. Um, so we can kind of think about humidity combined with temperature in terms of <clears throat> a couple of different measures. There's dew point, which is a more technical measure of the amount of water in the air. And um, there's also wet bulb global temperature, which kind of accounts in, um, it accounts in temperature, it accounts in humidity, and then it tries to factor in things like how much sun is shining down on you. Um, we see that one used in like the research literature sometimes. But um, if you like look at your weather app, you'll see dew point. So by combining temperature and dew point, you can get a number that helps you to understand how you might need to adjust plan pacing. I know, Amanda, on your website, you have a really great dew point chart. Um, we'll have the link to it in the show notes so people can reference it. And so like if there's any humidity in your race, even if it's, you know, 40 degrees but humid, I really encourage you to check out that chart and kind of rethink your pacing strategy based on that information. 
Yeah, honestly, like even knowing that myself, as we talked about coaches not always making the best decisions, I went into Chicago in 2021 and it was, I don't know, 75 at the start and probably 80% humidity. And so I knew it was too hot for the goal that I had. And so had I adjusted, I probably would have had a significantly better race, but I was so determined and I have seen this in our athletes too, like, no, no, I can overcome this. So at mile 15, I just had to start laughing. Honestly, I was like, you knew better and you did this anyways. So in no, it sucks when it happens on race day, but it's better to make those little adjustments and have a better overall race than to kind of flush the whole race down the toilet because you're so determined to not change anything. Absolutely. Like, and I, I've made that mistake myself. Um, and I see a lot of runners being like, oh, I should just be tougher than the heat, but this isn't a mental toughness thing. This is actually like a physiological thing. So when your core temperature begins to rise, your brain temperature also goes up. And this places a lot of thermal strain on both the peripheral and central nervous systems of the body. And it's often accompanied by things like fluid imbalances. So you dehydrate way more easily in warm weather, because you're sweating more, you're losing more fluid. You also are losing more sodium. Um, And if you aren't replacing those, it compounds that thermal strain. Your heart starts pumping harder to push out enough blood, enough oxygen, but your blood volume is going down because you're dehydrated. It's really, it's a lot of stress, a lot of strain on your body. Um, Because of that stress and strain, you begin to experience both like central nervous system fatigue. So like you're mentally really tired and peripheral fatigue, which means your muscles are tired. They start outputting less. Um, your metabolic efficiency declines. Your cardiovascular output goes up beyond what you can sustain. It's just this like perfect storm of a lot of bad factors that you cannot override no matter how good your mental toughness is. Have you seen any cooling techniques that can be useful on these super hot race days? Yes. Yeah. So, um, a 2015 review in the British journal of sports medicine found a 5.7% improvement with pre-cooling techniques, which I'll elaborate on in a moment and a 9.9% improvement in mid cooling techniques, cooling used during the race. Um, I had to do like a paper on this in graduate school. And then I really started applying it to real life coaching. And I've seen huge results. I've seen people set PRs on hot races in Florida, from doing this. So it translates from the science to real life. Pre-cooling is this idea of like kind of slightly bringing down your core temperature before you start racing. So drinking an icy beverage at the start line. Um, You might see like some people wearing like little ice vests or shoving ice down like in their hat or down their sports bra before the race. Obviously you don't want to make yourself shiver. That's bad. But it's just kind of like keeping yourself cool before you start so that you aren't already sweating at the start. And then the one that really makes a difference is the mid-cooling. Think about how in like the Tokyo Olympics, you saw Molly Seidel just like throwing ice down her sports bra. Um, In a race, the simplest way to do this without like huge core support is grab an extra cup at each aid station and just dump it on your head and neck. Um, It's ultras like Western states, people will sit there and like put ice in pockets and crevices and in their hats. That can really help. But even just the cold water, keeping your body cold and wet 
really helps um, if you wear white clothing versus black. It kind of further enhances that because the black's not absorbing the heat. Um, it makes a huge, huge difference for something that seems so simple. One other thing that I have seen, and I've seen some studies on this um, in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, so it's something I've had a number of my athletes do, and that is uh, cool palm, so palm cooling. And so if you're willing to carry a bottle for some point, if like half that bottle is frozen, half has your water, whatever, most of their studies right now are in like fatigue for someone doing like heavy bench press and stuff like that. But the changes were pretty impressive. So for whatever reason, it has to do with the sensors in our palm, basically going up to our brain and sort of like telling our brain like to bring the core temperature down. Um, So that has been something I've had a number of folks try in some of these hot races and something I actually did without thinking about it when I lived and trained in Miami was I would carry my bottle and it was always super cold. I love that. That's a really great idea. And it's a win-win because then you have fluids on you to take in extra fluids. Yeah. So it's not like a super hard thing to just kind of implement, um, but can really be kind of beneficial. Nice. So now we've got some weather out of the way. So then the next thing is kind of looking at the actual course and how that impacts our strategy. So Like we said, initially sort of that even pacing start to finish is kind of our ideal, but that really applies when we're talking about a flatter course. So a Chicago, a Berlin, something that's very similar start to finish or a course that's rolling, but consistently rolling from start to finish. Um, I think when you start looking at courses like Boston that maybe have a heavier set of hills or a revel that is a super long downhill, we have to make some adjustments. Um, So if you've got a course where it's more like rolling hills, so some of those are maybe a little steeper, I think a good way to think about it is also to go back to what Laura said around effort. So our goal there is when we come to hills to maintain effort. So I don't need you to power up the hill, but I also don't want you to like drastically back off every time you get to a hill. Instead, like your pace may drop a little so that you can maintain the same level of effort. And then it's always for me a mental kind of thing of like, there will be a downhill. There will be a downhill. I keep telling myself that. When you get the downhill, you can open up a little bit, but it's not a time to go crazy. So if we try to just really like, I'm going to make up time every time there's a downhill, you will trash your legs in a totally different way. So again, downhill, it's going to feel easier. So I'm going to pick up a little pace, but I'm still just kind of maintaining that same effort level, which should overall kind of get me right around that average mile pace I'm aiming for. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on like, strategy, anything you change for someone who is looking at like a Boston or a downhill where some of those have, it's a little bit of a different thought process. Yeah. So for Boston revel races, any of those where you're even CIM where you're starting on a downhill, I usually like have my athletes almost treat that first mile like a warm up. Some of them do warm up before the race anyway, but they just, the cue I give them is gently roll down the hill, just kind of lean into it 
and let it help you float. And for some, I'll give them speed limits. I'm like, I want you to check your watch at a quarter mile and make sure it's whatever is slightly slower than your marathon pace. Maybe like if they're hitting, trying to aim for an eight, I want you at an eight ten pace a quarter mile in. And so that kind of thought of just like rolling down the hill, gently easing in gives a sense of control at the start. Cause what we really want to avoid in something like Boston or revel races is too much muscle fatigue too early on. Sometimes you'll feel so aerobically good at the start that then you just kind of bomb those hills. And by mile 15, your quads are killing you and it's muscle fatigue that prevents you from pushing more in the race, um, which especially at Boston, we want to avoid because you have those later uphills, the Newton Hills. Um, so a lot of time we'll kind of gently ease and build into race effort is another cue I use. Like over the first 5k, you build into it. We avoid big pace changes and then we kind of float up the hills. Like you said, not changing your effort, but just floating up them and then letting the downhills help things feel easy. Um, and that cue I find helps people from, again, being too aggressive on early downhills. Um, and I found that works really well for people. I had a bunch of people have a really solid day at Boston over the years. Some people even set marathon PRs there. Um, and we're not, again, looking to have the last 10K be this like super fast, super aggressive, but we're just looking for you to get to the last 10K, not feeling like your quads have been put through a meat tenderizer. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of that last 10K is it's not like I'm going to get to that last 10K and turn it on. It's I want to get to that last 10K and feel like I can still run that last 10K the way I started. Um, I think New York, similar idea. So obviously you're starting on an uphill, but it's that same sort of process of like, okay, this is mile one. And in mile one, I don't want to just go gung ho. So like, because I'm starting on an uphill, I'm going to ease into this and know that I won't be perfectly at pace, but I'll let myself get into that over that first 5k. I think that also like we keep going back to this idea of taking some pressure off. And so you're not wasting energy, forcing yourself up that hill at exact or faster than marathon pace. Yeah, absolutely. Like the first 5k is not where you're going to like going fast. There isn't going to give you an awesome day. It's, you can't like, you can go too slow, but like, let's just really pretend you can't go too slow. Cause you're all amped up and excited. Yeah. I think I've heard it said before that like, you can't win the marathon with the mm-hmm. first 5k, but you can lose it. Yes. So yes. Overdoing it early on. It just is so hard later. So I like to tell my racers, I have a game that I started playing, which was my goal in the last couple of miles of a race is how many people can I catch or pass? And I know that can only happen if I did not go crazy at the beginning because I need to still be able to keep like moving and working hard in those last couple of miles. Um, So just a weird little strategy I've used. I think that's a great strategy, especially for like some of our more competitive minded athletes who like are going in and they want to PR or maybe they even want to place. Um, Cause like I've worked with some people for whom it's placing is a goal and yeah, I, that's a really great strategy because it kind of plays to that competitive nature of some marathoners. Yeah. Um, a couple of like just little fueling things to think about when we're talking about pacing and that kind of strategy. So 
if you know that you have a set of big hills coming up or even just a long hill, taking in some carbs like shortly before that can be really beneficial. Um, it is that moment of like your brain just registering that it's getting fuel. And so that just gives you an immediate boost before it's even fully hit your system. Um, and we know that when you're running uphill, likely your heart rate's going to increase a little bit more. So your body is looking for more carbs. So you just want it to be kind of topped off. Also kind of thinking, hey, if I'm using caffeine in my gels, it's going to peak at about 45 minutes in my system, um, 30 to 45, depending on who you are. Um, so thinking about that too, when you're choosing to take in that caffeine, like, okay, where do I think the toughest point is for me usually in the race? Is it about mile 20? Is it about mile 17? And then I get excited and I'm fine after that. So kind of timing that. Um, and then the other one is not forgetting to take your fuel when you're getting towards the end. So I think a lot of times we'll be like, oh, I've just got two miles left, so I'm not going to take this. But again, your brain is like, okay, fuel, I can go this extra little bit. So not skipping out on that final fuel and just thinking of it instead as like, this is my extra little boost to make it and hold on to this effort as long as I can. Yeah, those are all great tips. And I especially like the one you had about carbs before a big uphill, because you get breathing kind of heavy on those big uphills also. Um, yeah, so I think that's all great. And like, if you listen to episode four, we talk a little bit more about fueling for races that can kind of help fill in a little bit extra info if you're confused about that part. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, if we're going to have a good race, a big piece of that is setting a realistic marathon goal from the start. So how do you kind of work through that with athletes? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I probably drive a lot of my athletes like a little crazy because we don't set marathon goals until like two weeks out from the race. I want to see where your fitness fully is. And usually I give some of like the biggest marathon workouts about three-ish weeks out from a race, maybe even two weeks for certain athletes um, playing around with different taper theories there. Um, but a lot of the times we'll kind of use multiple data points. So if they've raced a tune-up race or they've raced a race pretty recently, we use that. We put that into something like the VDOT calculator. And then I usually add like five minutes to what the VDOT calculator says. Um, maybe even up to eight if they're a little bit more of a fast twitch runner, do better in like the 5K. Um and then I look at their workouts. So we'll do a lot of marathon pace workouts and training, um, especially like I like to have people do like eight to 10 miles continuous at marathon pace folded into a long run about two to three weeks out from a race. And so we look at all this data and especially those workouts will give a really good indication if the athlete's pacing them appropriately of where is your marathon pace. Um, and then sometimes just for like a little extra security, maybe add like five seconds per mile to that because we don't want to be too aggressive in the marathon. It's a really long distance. Um, so usually that's how I do it. Like I know different coaches have different methods, so I'm not saying mine is better than anyone else's. It's just what I found has worked really well for a pretty large sample size of athletes. Yeah. I think figuring out your goal marathon pace is tough, honestly, for everyone because 26 miles is a long way and so much can happen in that time frame. So one of the things 
when an athlete starts working with us, they often ask, do you think X is a realistic goal time? And the answer is we just have no idea, like you said, until we get so much closer to the race, because what you're doing on day one, I don't expect to be your marathon pace. That is the whole goal of a full training cycle. So I think it's okay on day one to sort of say like, oh, I'd really like to run a four hour marathon and then kind of work towards that. But to know that on day one, you're not going to be in that fitness. So you shouldn't expect to hit those paces right away. And then as you're going through training, that's where you can start to adjust that and say, okay, that was the goal. But now that I'm looking at like, I just did 13 miles you know, how did that actually compare to this goal nine minute pace that I want to be able to run and plugging it into a calculator. And then, like you said, I think also importantly, understanding that those calculators, you may want to like add a little cushion onto what they're, they're telling you. Or I know my Garmin, if I could run what my Garmin says are my predicted race times, I probably would have qualified for the Olympic trials at this point. (laughs) Garmin has such high confidence in people and like we should have that confidence in ourselves, but tamper it with some reality. Um, and I, I do think also like marathon paces will feel a little different and be a little different in relation to like other training paces depending on the runner. So like sometimes you hear like, oh, your easy pace is one to two minutes per mile slower than your marathon pace, but we don't want to like reverse engineer from that because it's going to be a lot different for someone who's like a three hour marathoner who can go pretty hard in that marathon space and then probably is doing high volume training and going super easy on their easy days compared to someone who's maybe a five hour marathoner, six hour marathoner, and their marathon pace might pretty much be their easy pace because they're out there for so long. I think that's a really good point. Um, Yes. So like a lot of the recommendations are always not going to be perfect across everyone. And so it keeps kind of coming back to that effort level sort of thing um, and practicing that. So I think that's a great reminder. Um, Other tips for race day and kind of finding that pace, staying on pace, other things you like to have people do. I'm trying to think. Um, So in big, big city races, um, use your auto lap on your watch to get an idea. I'm sure you you, you, know, you mentioned doing Chicago. Um, Chicago is notoriously bad in awful. that first mile. Um, so like your watch might be like, hey, you're going a six minute mile. And that might freak you out if your goal is an eight. So keep an eye on mile markers in the big majors races and um, use those to kind of determine your pacing. It's a little bit different in like smaller marathons. Like every time I've run CIM, it's been pretty spot on. But big city races or conversely like trail marathons, your GPS might not be 100% accurate for your pacing. Yeah. I think one of the things that's available at a lot of races is the pace group. And so there are pros and cons to using a pace group. So one is trusting the pacer. Um, So some pacers are incredible. Others start out too fast and slow down. Others start out kind of slow. And then all of a sudden they're like cranking up the speed when they realize they're not quite on goal. So that's where I think you have to make sure you're kind of in control of your race, double checking are the paces kind of what you'd expect, but the group can also really help pull you along. 
So for a lot of people, the fact that there are a number of other folks who are also just kind of aiming for the same thing feels more comfortable. It feels like security. It feels like something to focus on instead of the next mile. I'm just focusing on sticking to this group. So you can play with that and see because the marathon is mental. There is so much of our like self-talk going on. So figure out what kind of works for you. Personally, the pace group makes me kind of insane. It is a large body of people that are all really close to each other. And for some reason, like in the marathon, there just comes a point where I'm like, I need a bubble. Folks get away from me. Don't touch me. I'm just trying to do this thing. So I like to sort of keep them in view, not be like right in it. Yeah, absolutely. I do the same. Like when I've done my marathons, usually I'm just going to use my race times to kind of give a context, but like when I did a 3.29, I lined up behind the 3.35 pacer just to like help me not start out too fast. Um, and then I kind of like used like the 3.35 pacer as a visual of like building, you know, eventually I wanted to build past them gradually. And then I used the 3.30 pacer as a visual in the second half of like, I want to get near you guys or past you guys. Um that can obviously backfire. Like if all of a sudden you get passed by a slower pace group, you're like, oh no. And that can mentally be tough. Um, but they, they do provide really good visuals in the race, like you said. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it there again. So when we keep talking about this holding back at the start, there's a couple things there. One is we're trying not to waste energy by weaving in and out of people. Um, Oh my gosh, for sure. I have done that in very large races and you're adding distance, you're adding energy, like you're kind of frustrated. So try not to spend a ton of energy, just dodging everyone and trying to get ahead. Cause it almost always results in like sort of sprinting ahead, slowing down. Um, so trying to kind of keep yourself chill there. Um, and like you said, if you start even a little back, sometimes the benefit of that is you're going out at a more comfortable pace um, and then able to kind of open it up. Instead of going out, often we try to line up with the people who are even faster and the result is you start running their pace, which is faster than your goal. Um, And so then you've started a little bit too hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening who might be like, ah, they're just like, I don't need to start out too easy. I'm fitter than that. It's actual like metabolic stuff. So it takes about like 15 to 20 minutes of running for like your full fat oxidation and like really heavy aerobic stuff to kick in. You rely a little bit more on glycolysis and produce a little bit more lactate early on. Um, We don't want that in the marathon. Like lactate's not a big bad, but it's friendly accompanying hydrogen ions are. So when we're talking about like starting out controlled, we're not underestimating your ability we're talking from a sheer metabolic perspective. Give yourself time for your aerobic metabolism to kick on. Ah, I love it. We're finishing on some science. (laughs) So thanks again, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Tread Lightly. We can't wait to keep talking with you. Yes, please give us a follow, rate, review, subscribe, and thank you for listening.